Suffering can lead us into a deeper relationship with God, which gives us eternal perspective and peace. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to Job chapter 40, Job chapter 40, this Lord willing will be the second to the last message uh, in Job. As you recall, Job is a righteous man. God called him blameless and upright. He lost everything, as you remember, wealth, health, family, friends, power, position. God has declared Job blameless, and yet paradoxically, he's been suffering for months and months and months and months and doesn't understand why. He knows he's innocent, but he's still suffering, so he wrongly concludes that God is unjust, and he demands his day in court. He says, God, I want to go to court with you. I want an umpire. I want a judge who's going to lay his hands on both of us, and I'm filing formal charges against you for being unjust. So God comes to Job in a storm, which got his attention, and instead of answering Job's questions, God, the prosecutor, begins to ask Job questions. There are actually over 70 questions that God asks Job. Now, when God asks you a question, he is not seeking information. He already knows everything he's asking. He's asking you questions to open your mind, probably to what you do not yet know or do not yet realize. So God's questions are really designed to reveal Job's ignorance and Job's inability to manage God's universe. Because what Job is basically saying, God, you're incompetent to run your world. That's a pretty serious charge. So God's going to demonstrate to Job that in fact he is competent to run his world and Job is the one who's not competent. So these questions are going to highlight God's power and God's wisdom. And as you know, last week we went through the first 30 plus questions and Job does not even know one answer. He acknowledges at the end of the first conversation that he's small and insignificant he promises, he says, I'm not going to say anything more. But what he doesn't say is really critical. He doesn't retract any of the charges he's made against God. He says, I'm not going to charge you anything else, but I'm not going to retract anything I already said. So he's silent, but he's not submissive. He's reticent, but he's not repentant. And so God continues the counseling session until he gets to the point where he needs to be. Let's pick up the narrative in Job 40, verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. This is the second set of questions now, because he obviously didn't learn everything he needed to learn the first time. The Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity, and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together, bind them in the hidden place. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Here's the principle. God's providence goes beyond human perception. So judging God's governance is both ignorant and arrogant. God's providence goes beyond human perception. So judging God's governance is both ignorant and arrogant. Let's kind of define our terms here. What is providence? Providence is God's governance, God's management, God's oversight of his universe. And it's his wisdom, his power, and his love by which he cares for and directs everything in his universe. In God's kingdom, there are no accidents, and there is nothing random that occurs in God's universe. Everything is under his control from the micro to the macro, as we talked about the last several weeks. 
This word providence is an interesting word. The word provide, if you break that down, pro means before, and vide is video, video, which means to see. So to provide is to see before. It's to see in advance. It's to know what's going to happen before it happens. So God sees everything before it occurs. As a matter of fact, God sees the beginning from the end all at once. Time means nothing to him. Past, present, and future are all the eternal now. And God plans and manages everything in his universe to accomplish his divine will. And he does that, amazingly enough, without violating human free will. See, we get into trouble with God when we think we're smarter than he is. I've had lots of conversations with God where I've said, Lord, what I would like to do is drop a lightning bolt right on their left nostril and just, you know, take them out of circulation for a couple of weeks because they're really creating problems. And, you know, I think I'm wise enough to figure that out. And the Lord says, precisely because you are so ignorant, I'm not going to give you anywhere near that kind of power or authority, right? So Job has been struggling for months and months and months. He's in acute pain. It doesn't end. And he says, I know more than God knows, and so I'm charging God with injustice. And God says, well, Job, let's see how much you really know. I'm going to reveal my world to you so you can demonstrate your competence. And the truth of it is, the vast majority of what God does, somewhere around 99.999%, we don't know. Because he operates in an eternal sphere. We see what he does, but there's a lot we simply don't know. So we operate with ignorance. So Job charges God with injustice because, number one, God's treating him unfairly according to his standard of measurement. And number two, God fails to judge the wicked because the wicked prosper. God says, Job says, God, if you're really just, you would take the wicked out right now, right? So God says, Job, would you condemn me that you would be justified? In other words, you're going to exalt yourself higher than me. Now, condemn here means to to blame or to criticize as wicked. So Job is actually claiming that God is actually acting wickedly, and Job is exalting self above God. Well, the logical question is, Job, if you're actually more powerful than God, then why are you still suffering? I mean, fix it, right? People that claim to be Messiah, I tell them, well, there's lots of hospitals you can go empty out right now. If you've got those kinds of powers, let's exercise them, right? So God is going to prove to Job that he is unable to do himself what he's been blaming God for not doing. God says, in essence, look, pure, prove your ability to govern the universe with justice. I want you to put honor and dignity and majesty on. Since you're claiming that I'm using my power unjustly, show me your righteous justice, Job. Humble the proud with a look. Just look at him and humble him. Right? Crush them when he says, he really says, bury them. If you're so powerful and you're so just, you fix the wicked with your power right now. Obviously, Job's not doing that. As a matter of fact, he says, Job, before you try and govern my universe, show me what you can do with only two of my creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan. All of chapter 40 and all of chapter 41, most of 40 and all of 41 are talking about these two creatures. And the identity of these two creatures has been obviously debated strongly. Some believe that they represent mythological creatures, or they represent the spiritual forces of chaos and darkness and pride and sin. But God is describing these creatures as real, living animals that he created and that Job was familiar with and knew about. So God's now going to give Job a description of two of his creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan, and he said, if you can't handle these two creatures, how can you handle my universe, right? So chapter 40, verse 15. Behold now behemoth, which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thigh are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first in the ways of God. Let his maker bring near his sword. Surely the mountains bring him food, and all the beasts of the field play there. Under the lotus plants he lies down, in the covert of the reeds and the marsh. The lotus plants cover him with shade, the willows of the brook surround him. If a river rages, he is not alarmed. He is confident, though the Jordan rushes to his mouth. Can anyone capture him when he is on watch? With barbs, can anyone pierce his nose? So 
This is a description of this creature, behemoth. It's a transliteration of a Hebrew word that means colossal beast or super beast. Right? Beasts always mean wild animals. So this animal is an herbivore, not a carnivore or an omnivore. It eats grass like an ox does. And this animal is extremely heavily muscled. The loins, of course, are the hips and the pelvic ranges, and the belly is the core of the body. It connects, we call it the core, it connects the arms and the legs. And he uses terms like iron, I mean extremely strong, huge, bends his tail like cedar, like a cedar tree. A cedar tree is not a small tree. If you've got a tail like a cedar tree, you're obviously a very, very large animal. Massive size, massive strength. Tail that size could be used like a weapon. God says, this, this animal I created has bones that are like tubes of bronze and limbs like bars of iron. We're talking about a skeletal structure that is massive. God furthermore says, this animal is first or chief in the ways of God. It's indicating to me that this might have been the apex land creature in God's creation. So when you think about that, this great size would require... I guess in today's description, a four-legged support system that looked like an elephant. You know, elephant's legs are massive, big pads, strong skeleton, large diameter legs. Uh, so this is a very, very large creature. And it says, further describing him, it says the mountains bring him food. We're going to get into a little bit here in a second, but this may indicate that plants are floating down a river down a mountain into a river plain, and this animal seems to prefer to live in or near the water. Which makes sense. If you're really, really heavy animal, uh, you love water because it's buoyant. It supports your weight at that point. So this is a probably a semi-aquatic creature. Lotus plants, reeds, marsh, brook, river, it, it, they all indicate the scene that this animal lives and eats while partially submerged or at least under shade. So there's quite a lot of commentary about what is this creature. Obviously very large, very massive, and the three that most commentators describe are either the hippo, the elephant, or an extinct animal such as some kind of dinosaur. Now it's clear from the creation account in Genesis that God created, obviously, all the animals and man simultaneously, I mean within very, very close sequence, same day. So it's very clear that dinosaurs and people coexisted on Earth, and we could get into a lot of timing, which we'll deal with at a later date. But your typical commentator believes that God is referring to a hippopotamus because it lives in the water, it's got a large mouth, all those things. The challenge with my understanding of this is the hippo does not have a tail like a cedar tree. The hippo's got a little squiggly like pigtail. I mean, there's not much to it at that point in time. Elephants do like the water, but they spend most of their time on their land, and an elephant tail is also not like a cedar tree, right? So some have suggested this might be a dinosaur, like a sauropod. A sauropod is your, your typical plant-eating, long-neck, long-tail, four-legged plant-eater. And uh, this animal is described as lying down and being shaded by lotus plants, I don't know how big lotus plants were back in Job's era, but today they're pretty small, four or five feet. So, you know, that would maybe contraindicate a large dinosaur. A river rushing into the mouth of this creature would indicate a large mouth in the water, which the hippo certainly has, right? They love to be in the water. And, of course, the sauropod's neck would elevate its mouth above the water. The chief issue here between these two is a hippo weighs about four tons, about 8,000 pounds. It's a big animal. Uh, but it's only about five feet high at the shoulder. It's not a very, very tall animal, so it's nowhere near the largest creature that God ever made. Sauropods are an interesting form of dinosaur. We would call them uh, brontosaurus or things like that. There's a lot of variety of them. And they range from about a half ton on the small side to about 80 tons on the large sides. That, matter of fact, the largest sauropod skeleton, they just discovered this down in Patagonia in Argentina in 2014, no surprise, was named Patagonia Titan. Well, duh, found in Patagonia, right? It had a femur bone. The femur bone runs from the hip to the knee. This is your femur. The femur bone on this animal is eight feet long. And I've seen pics of it, and it's like a tree trunk. I mean, it's absolutely massive. Um, and God says, can anyone capture this animal or pierce his nose? Well, Egyptian pharaohs killed hippos on a routine basis with spears. 
So you're looking going, eh, I don't know. It sounds like no one can kill this animal, at least no human in Job's era could. So maybe the hippo doesn't work. So it may be describing a large species of hippo that's now extinct. Um, there's a lot of animals we have that are now extinct. We have fossils of ground sloths in Latin America that are nine feet long and weigh over a ton. Today's sloth weighs 20 pounds and hangs in trees. So there's a rather large variation. So it's distinctly possible that there is some kind of a hippo or some kind of dinosaur we simply don't know about yet at this point in time. At any rate, behemoth is an animal that Job can't control, can't capture, can't kill, can't domesticate, and God says, look, if you can't even deal with one of my creatures, Job, what makes you think that you're smart enough or strong enough to judge the way I run my universe? Just saying. Next, God refers to Leviathan. Go to chapter 41. And this entire chapter is describing, or most of this chapter, this particular creature. And God starts by saying in verse 1, Can you draw Leviathan with a fishhook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose? Or pierce his jaw with a hook? Can you fill his skin with harpoons? Or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. No one is so fierce. Your first battle will be your last one. No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he that can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So the word Leviathan literally means to twist or to coil. It, it means the sin sinuous one. And it implies some form of reptile, some form of, of, of serpent. Uh, the, the summary of this animal is rather significant. He cannot be captured by fish hooks. Human weapons are ineffective against him. He's untamable. His body is impenetrable. He has sharp teeth. His back is like a row of shields that are airtight. He is immensely strong. Mighty men fear when he rises up. No weapon can harm him. When he moves, he leaves his mark in the mud. He is unlike any creature, and he's king over all the other creatures. He's semi-aquatic in that he lives in the water and he can come up on land. This is quite a, quite a creature. Most commentators today believe he's referring to the crocodile or some form of extinct dinosaur that we uh, don't know yet. So God begins the description of this creature by saying, can you draw him out with a hook? Do you go fishing for this creature like you go fishing for trout? You know, when you put a hook in the nose of an animal, you try and control the behavior, and God is saying, you can't control this creature. You can't put a hook in the nose of this creature. You cannot manage this creature or control him. And this, whatever this is, it has very, very thick skin. Harpoons can't pierce the skin. He's fierce. Uh, he says, remember the battle, you will not do it again. What he's saying is your first battle will be your last battle because he will kill you. So don't rouse him. Don't get into a fight with him. He's saying, look, Job, you can't even control this animal. How can you tell me how to run my world? And, and I think it's important that when we look at our circumstances, many, many times our circumstances dominate our thinking. Have you ever noticed that suffering can make you selfish? Say yes. I, I, when you're in enough pain, what do you think about? The pain. And that's all we think about at that point. So it's very easy to get narrow focused here, tunnel vision, and God is saying, I want you to open your minds and see how big my world is and how complicated it is and everything that I'm doing that you don't know anything about. I own it, I control it, and my ways are beyond human understanding. Verse 13, he continues asking Job, who can strip off his outer armor? Who can come within his double mail? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth there is terror. His strong scales are his pride. Shut up as with a tight seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined to one another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezes flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame goes forth from his mouth. So this creature has skin that is literally airtight. It's like airtight metal. 
armor. You can't skin him, and you can't pry open his mouth because they're filled with sharp teeth. When they say his eyes are like the morning, it's interesting poetry. I want you to think of a crocodile underwater. When a crocodile surfaces to the surface, what's the first thing you see? The two eyes. And what do you see? You see these two little half moons or half suns. They come up. How does the sun come up over the hills? You see it not all at once. You see just the rim, and then you see a half of a sun and three quarters and the whole thing. So he says, this crocodile or this animal, when it surfaces, the first thing, your nose breathe and the eye bulges. So he's indicating that his eyes are like the morning. It's utterly intriguing that he refers to this animal as seemingly capable of producing fire, which is utterly interesting. There are references to dragons in almost every culture. And many of them we call myths, but it's fascinating that they seem to be ubiquitous and almost universal. Some commentators on Job believe that God is simply using hyperbole. I mean, he's using this language in this poetic section, not as literal descriptions, but as a poetic description to make Job understand the point about the power of these creatures. Commentators who believe that Leviathan is a, is a crocodile explain this fire. They use Lewis Warren Wiersbe says, when the crocodile churns up the river and blows out water, the sun reflects from its vapor and it looks like smoke and fire from the, from the crocodile's mouth. There are legends of dragons throughout history and throughout the world. Dragons are unique animals, um, as we learned from Shrek, in that they can breathe out fire, right? They also like donkeys, right? Yeah. The most miraculous thing about Shrek is that donkey never got eaten. That's amazing. Love between a dragon and a donkey. Huh? That's, that takes a miracle. So they can breathe out fire. Now, what we do know, at least today, that that's an anatomical impossibility due to the temperature of fire. The minimum ignition temperature for fire is to burn wood is 392, 392 degrees Fahrenheit. We don't know of any animal anatomy today that can manage 392 degrees Fahrenheit temperature in their mouth, as is so often the case with a dragon. But it's interesting that when you see a myth or a legend across cultures and across times, many times it reflects some altered version of a past reality. So it's an ongoing mystery as to the origin of this universal story of dragons, but nonetheless, it's intriguing. But God is not limited by us. God creates some fascinating creatures. God has one that, that uses explosives as a defense mechanism, and you probably know it's the Bombardier beetle. It has the ability, this beetle produces, it mixes hydrogen peroxide and hydrochloroquine along with inhibitor chemicals. There's two enzymes called catalase and peroxidase, for those of you that are into that. It allows the beetle to fire boiling hot noxious gases into the face of their enemies, kind of like um, you know, tear gas. And the temperature of this gas mixture is 212 Fahrenheit which is the boiling point of water. So if you had a uh, tear gas in your eyes at 212, it'd probably get your attention. There's also a species of eel in the Amazon that they've measured. It, it generates electricity. It's got a whole set of plates along the rear of the tail. And of course, the head is the positive, the tail is the negative. So when you get that connection going, this thing will generate 860 volts of electricity, 860. Now, if you put your hand in your socket at home, it's 110. So this is probably five times as much. Fortunately, this thing only generates one amp because 10 amps will kill you stone dead, but we have records of people being killed by one of these things, and I've seen a number of things on nature videos where you get an animal and the, the uh, eel is shocking it, and it's pretty astonishing. So the, the point here is God has the capacity to create creatures far beyond our ability to comprehend, and we're the still discovering species all over the world at this point in time. God also describes Leviathan as unconquerable, verse 26. The sword that reaches him cannot avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He regards iron as straw, bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned into stubble for him. His underparts are like sharp potsherds, he spreads out like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the depths boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a jar of ointment. 
Behind him he makes a wake to shine. One would think the deed to be gray-haired. Nothing on earth is like him, one made without fear. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of men. Whatever this creature is, his armor, his skin, is impervious to swords, spears, darts, javelins, arrows, sling stones. So there's no human weapon, at least at that point, that was able to harm him. It is interesting, he says, the hide of the underbelly is jagged. So when he walks, he leaves marks that look like a threshing sledge. Now, a threshing sledge back in the day was like a harrow. You had these heavy wooden platforms, and you had sharp rocks, and they would, they would literally drag them through the soil to break it up. You know what a harrow looks like? Say yes. Humor me. Anyway, it would drag through, and it would leave marks like dragging a pencil through clay. The harrow looks like this. And they're saying when this animal walks through, that's the kind of marks they leave through the mud. And you can see where he had been by looking at the marks, which leads us to believe that he was a semi-aquatic animal. And that's why a lot of people believe he was probably the Nile crocodile, which is a rather large croc. Uh, he swims. He swims so fast that he stirs the water up. He appears to be boiling and foamy. He leaves a shiny wake with white caps. And it looks like white hair. That's why they use the word gray hair, white hair, white caps. This is poetry. You have to kind of go with it, right? Um, he's unique on earth. He has no fear, and he has no natural enemies. Except proud people fear him. So even humanity fears this animal. So God says to Job, look, you say I'm not just. You say I'm not exercising my power rightly. You cannot humble haughty and wicked people, but this creature, Leviathan, can humble you. You're not as smart or as strong as you think you are, Job, just by way of perspective. If you can't even subdue two of these creatures, how can you be competent to judge me and tell me how to run my universe? Verse 42, verse 1, now lists Job's second response to God. Job's first response came in chapter 40, and remember he said, I'm going to shut my mouth up, but I, I don't retract anything I've said. In chapter 42, we see a completely different mindset. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and repent in dust and ashes. Here's the principle. Suffering can lead us into a deeper relationship with God, which gives us eternal perspective and peace. Suffering can lead us into a deeper relationship with God, which gives us eternal perspective and peace. So the first rebuke, Job says, I'm finite. What can I reply to you? You're, 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 you're bigger than I am. Now he humbles himself before God's sovereignty. He says, you can do anything. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. No one can prevent your plans from coming to pass. And for a child of God as we are in this room, that should give us tremendous comfort. The sovereignty of God is a foundation bedrock upon which our comfort stands because no matter what happens to us, we know that we have a good God, but we also have a sovereign God. And nothing happens in your life that doesn't cross your father's desk first, and he gives approval to it or it wouldn't happen. Nothing. Satan, sins, suffering, people, politics, pandemics, crises, climate, economics, the environment, there is nothing in this world that's not under God's control. So God's people should not be losing their cookies and living in fear. You would expect the world to live in fear. People that want to save the earth at all costs, I don't disagree with the motive to be a good steward of the planet. God gave us the planet and we're accountable for how we treat it. But this ain't home. This planet is finite, and it has an expiration date. First Peter tells us that God is going to burn it up, which means you do not want to be here when that occurs, right? 
You want to be out of here in heaven at that point. So we as Christians need to remember the sovereignty of God to control all things, and that should give us peace in the middle of an uncertain planet and an uncertain power structure, uncertain politics. All of those are uncertain, but God is always countable, right? So Job had not only seen God's power, he'd now seen God's goodness. He had seen how God cares for his creatures, how God cared for him, and he says, God, I declared, I opened my mouth about which I didn't understand. Here's one of our problems as humans. What we do know is an infinitesimal fraction of what we don't know. Would you agree? What we do know is only a small fraction of what we don't know. Our, our, our ignorance is far larger than our knowledge. However, we often don't know what we don't know. We're ignorant of our ignorance. And so therefore we make decisions thinking that what we do know is all there is to know. We're finding this out right now. People have opinions about our current situation, which they are delighted to share with you whether you ask or not. And they are extremely strong about whatever opinion they have, whether or not it's backed by evidence or not. They don't, we don't need evidence either side. Both sides are guilty of this. I've made up my mind. Don't destroy me with facts because we assume that what we do know is all there is to know. Therefore, anybody who disagrees with us is obviously ignorant and stupid and wicked nonetheless, you know. So tolerance is the ability to live with people in peace who may strongly disagree with you. That character trait is sadly lacking. We have redefined tolerance to, if you don't agree with me, you are evil and wicked and stupid, right? That's not tolerance. That's uniformity. That's not unity. It's like a young person who doesn't understand most of life's problems. You know why? Because they live at home. And when you live at home, who solves the problems? Mom and dad solve most of the problems before you even figure out that there is a problem. So when you're 16, you think the world is fixable. Everything is fixable. I mean, it's just, just do it, you know, right? You don't understand the nature of the problems because mom and dad are your buffers between you and reality. But when you're 16, there is nothing you do not know. Right? I mean, you just are confident. The problem is you don't know what the problems are at that point. So when people leave home, they get an education on the problems of life that they're now responsible to fix. And as parents, we would be extremely well advised to let them struggle with life's problems. We should not be too eager to make it easy for them, because if we make it too easy, they will never grow up. I talk to parents routinely. My kid, blah, 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 I can't believe they don't know this or that. And I said, well, how old are they, 42? Well, what are you doing? <laughs> well, I pay their rent, I pay their car. I said, of course they're not going to grow up. They don't have to. Right? I mean, if you give them a credit card at 27, they can sit in the bedroom and pull down iPods or whatever it is they're listening to and never have to go out and do something. Come on. See, God lets us struggle because he wants us to mature. He wants us to grow. Trust him. So Job had no idea of the complexity of the problems of running the universe. May I submit to you that you and I have no idea of the complexities of running the universe. If God can manage his universe, as we talked about last week, I think he can manage your in-laws, right? So Job thought that his view of the world and his view of God was accurate. Well, when God did conform to his demands, he accused God of wrongdoing, but he was operating from ignorance because most things in life he did not know and he didn't have the humility to acknowledge it. So when God revealed to Job just a small part, I mean, an infinitesimal part of what's required to manage his universe, Job realized, whoa, whoa, whoa. these problems required to manage this are far bigger than I ever dreamed. And God is infinitely wiser and stronger than I thought. He says, God, you've shown me things too wonderful for which I did not know. Remember a couple of weeks ago we said, the beginning of wisdom is acknowledging your ignorance. Well, Job's now doing that. He humbles himself and he says, God, I've been proud and self-centered. You are the center, and you always do what's right. And therefore, God, I will ask you, and you instruct me. 
Instead of me telling you how to run your universe, I'm going to ask you to instruct me how to run my life. So he acknowledged, God, I flunked your exam. You gave me 70 questions. I didn't know any of them. I guess I need to be taught by you. So now he saw God accurately. So now he's starting to see himself accurately in his situations. And he says, God, I heard about you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. He has a new vision of God. You know, hearing about God secondhand is very, very different from knowing God by firsthand experience. Would you agree? It's like marriage. Before marriage, you have lots of ideas about what marriage is like or how it should be or how it's going to be for you. You are going to do this so much better than your parents or your grandparents. I mean, you are going to blaze a new trail and make a marriage that the world has never seen before, right? And once you get married, now you don't know about marriage. You know marriage from firsthand blood and guts experience, right? And your spouse passes gas and drools when they sleep and all this other stuff. That's the real world, right, that you, you, know, you live in at that point. So now you know about marriage, you don't know about it, you know it by direct experience, and your knowledge base changes, and hopefully it leads to some humility. That maybe mom and dad and grandparents were dealing with, struggling with issues at that point in time that I didn't know about when I was 10 years old. You know, it's like hearing about somebody. If, if, if you had heard about somebody, read about them, and they were a famous person, that's an entirely different ballgame than them saying, you know, let's travel together for a week. You can just hang out and leave for the next 168 hours. At the end of that period of time, you are going to know that person from firsthand experience. That's what Job is talking about. I heard about you, but I didn't know you. So knowing about God's intellectual. You want to know about God? He's told us here, whatever you need to know about him, he's written it down, and you can understand it in plain English, right? It's accurate. It's not exhaustive, but it's accurate. It tells you true truth about God. Knowing God is experiential, and it's relational, and it begins at the moment of salvation. We know God personally how? Through Jesus Christ, his son, right? John 14, 9, Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know what God the Father looks like? Look at Jesus the Son. He is the exact representation of his nature, right? John 10, 30 says, I and the Father are one. So we know what God is like by looking at Jesus the Son, God come in the flesh. Even better news is Jesus wants a personal relationship with us. He wants us to know him relationally. Revelation 3, 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, many people hear... Not everybody opens the door. I will come in and dine with him. That's a word for fellowship or community or relationship and he with me. So you have the opportunity to have this personal relationship with God himself through Jesus Christ the Son. Psalm 34 is an interesting invitation. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Try it, right? When you're, when you're looking at food, especially at a buffet, the food is just saying, taste me. Try it. See what it tastes like. God always invites that. That's a daily invitation. Every morning you wake up, God says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Renew your relationship with me. I want to talk with you. I want to hear from you. I want to be able to communicate with you. I'm persuaded that God wants to hear from us more than we want to hear from him. One measure of where your spiritual life is, how long does it take you after you wake up in the morning to pray? I don't mean a formal prayer. I mean, how, how long does it take before you start talking to God? How long before you say, Lord, today is your day. Thank you that I got out of bed. Uh, thank you that we have air conditioning so I can sleep. Thank you that we have hot water. Thank you for your word. Thanks that your spouse is still in bed next to you. You didn't leave during the night. You didn't know it, right? I mean, you know, what are you grateful for? Say thank you routinely. You know, if it takes till a problem before you communicate with God, you're missing a lot of loving relationship that you'd like to have. You can know about Jesus reading through the Bible, but not to have a relationship with him. When you confess your sins, ask Jesus to forgive you, God the Holy Spirit comes to live in your life, and now you begin that personal relationship with him. 
Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, is a quote that's attributed to him, and he says, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. We see the world chasing after all this stuff. If only I have more toys. If only I have bigger toys. If only I have more expensive toys. If only I have better promotions, more money, you know, spouse number four instead of three because the first three weren't very good, so the fourth one's going to be magic. You know, the world does all this crazy stuff, right? Because they're looking to satisfy their soul for things on this earth instead of with Jesus himself. So Job says, God, my soul is now satisfied in you. And here's the summary thought of that. I didn't put it on the screen, but you can write it down. When you know who, you don't need to know why. When you know who, God himself, personally, you don't need to know why. See, we want God to tell us why. Well, if God told us why, we wouldn't comprehend it. We're not that smart. He's looking at eternity. We can't comprehend eternity. Right? But when we know who, if we have a relationship, you know, when you were a little kid, I mean a little kid, I'll never forget, I was a little kid, and we were going, we swam in the canals because we didn't have a pool, right? We were poor. And I, my dad took me in the canal, and we were in deep water, five or six feet, you know, and I was terrified because I couldn't swim. All I know is hang on to his neck. I didn't need to know how to swim. I needed to know that dad was going to keep me safe. That's all I needed to know. Think about that when you put your grandson in the swimming pool, right? So Job says now, I retract and repent. I grieve over my sin. I turn away from my sin. I take back my accusations that God is unjust and I'm innocent. I'm now satisfied with God himself. I'm no longer demanding that God answer my questions. Verse 7 of chapter 42. Then it came about, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him so that I may not do to you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of we what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job. Here's the principle. God wants us to pray for sinners to be reconciled to him. God wants us to pray for sinners to be reconciled to him. God cares deeply that he's portrayed accurately. And Job's three friends had lied about God. They said God only punishes the wicked only rewards the righteous in this life. So they're limiting God's sovereignty. They said, God deals on the law of retribution. He only treats you like you treat him. You treat him badly, he treats you badly. You treat him well, he'll treat you well. That's not true at all. God is not just just. God is merciful. God's not just a judge. God is a father, and they misrepresented God. And we have a lot of people in our world today misrepresenting God because they take God from their own brain as opposed to the Bible. You don't get to make this up. God's told us what he's like. It's all written down, right? When they brought sacrifices to atone for their sins, Job prayed for them, which is amazing. These are the people that told him he was a gross sinner and he was deserving to judge, and God killed his children because he was so evil. I mean, these people were really, really harsh. God says, Job, pray for these people. Yeah, I'd have prayed for them, okay, but probably wouldn't have been a prayer of reconciliation, but God, Job prayed for them. It says God forgave them and God restored them. James 5.16, we need to remember this. When you have lost friends, remember the effective prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. And Jesus takes that one step further and says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. By the way, you will never go wrong praying that people will be drawn closer to the Lord. You will never, ever be wrong, because God, that's the passion of his heart, is to draw people close to him. I want you to notice that in three verses, God calls Job my servant four times. Just in case you were wondering how God thought about Job, he says, my servant Job, four times. 
Now, that's the highest praise possible in the Old Testament. My servant so-and-so. That is tremendously. God is vindicating Job's righteousness to his friends. And it says God accepted Job after he prayed for his three friends, which is utterly interesting. Job confesses his own sin, but it says God accepted him after he prayed for his three friends. Now, if you're praying for people who have desperately hurt you, what does that tell you? Your heart's changed. You now see them like Jesus sees them, right? Good model for us to pray for our enemies, pray for those who harm us. So God accepted Job's confession, restored his relationship. What's utterly interesting is earlier in this book, God had said, Job had said, God, we need a mediator, somebody between go you and me, someone who's going to intercede for us. Now God calls Job to be a mediator. Job prays for his friends who are separated from God. So he wanted the mediator. God says, you're the mediator. Pray for him. And then he restores him. The other thing that's interesting, when was Job's trial over? When God said it was over. See, we want the formula. God, if I just do da-da-da-da, then it will be over and my life will be easy street. All comfort, health, and wealth, right? No. Your trial will be over when God says it's over. And by the way, just to encourage you, just because you're done with this trial doesn't mean it's the last one in your life. There's more coming. But that's under the good, godly, loving hand of your Father who wants us to grow spiritually, and He knows what we need. And he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. 42.10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. When he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him and ate bread with him in his house. And they consoled him and comforted him for all the evil that God had brought unto him. And each one gave him a piece of money and each one a ring of gold. Now, my cynical little brain looks at that and goes, of course you show up when the problem's over, right? You come and, I'm so sorry you had all this trouble. I'm sorry, that's, that's just Brad talking. That is not inspired. That's just me, just saying. Verse 12, let's go back to the Word. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. And he had seven sons and three daughters. And he named the first Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuch. Okay. And in all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons for generation. And Job died an old man full of days. Here's the principle. Our relationship with God is restored when we repent. But some things in our lives may not be healed until heaven. I wanted to say will not be healed until heaven, but I'm not that sure. But truth is, there are things in our life that will not be healed until heaven. The Lord is going to ordain that you are going to live with whatever you're dealing with now until glory. Now, you don't know what those are, so we trust Him a day at a time. We continue to pray for restoration and healing but it's up to him when that happens and how that happens. So after Job spiritually restored his relationship with God, he's now physically restored to health, and he's socially restored to his family and friends. And they brought him gifts, which he used to purchase breeding stock. And that's how he got his second herd. They brought him enough gifts and animals, etc. So we rebuilt the herds, and God doubled Job's earthly wealth in flocks and herds. Believe it or not, he was reconciled with his wife. We don't know how long they were out of pocket. It sounds like several months when he was suffering. She was not around. She's not mentioned uh, at the beginning of the book. She's actually not mentioned here other than the fact that he had seven sons and three daughters, and we know he was monogamous at that point, so we assume it's with the same woman. And since his other ten children were living in heaven, Job has 20 children, ten at another location, ten on earth. Twenty children doubled his family size. Jemima means handsome as the day, or dove, like dove soap, right? Jemima. Keziah means perfume. It's a cinnamon-like spice, cassia. I don't know what that is, but apparently it was a lovely perfume. And karen hapuch means horn of antimony or flask of color. 
Antimony was a substance they used in makeup. It's like mascara, I'm told. No personal experience with that, but that's what I'm told. So these are, these, all these names indicate beauty and fairness. And remarkably, Job gave them an inheritance with their brothers, which was very unusual. It was male primogeniture at that point in time. So brothers, men inherited land, and he gave them an equal share of the inheritance at that point in time. So Job is clearly generous and clearly compassionate. And it says, after this, he lived 140 years. So if it was 70 years at his trial, which seems reasonable, he lived about 210 years. It says he died an old man and full of days. The word full of days is interesting. It's used in the Old Testament, not so much the quantity of life as the quality of life. If you die full of days, what it means is you fulfilled God's plan for your life no matter how many days you have had. And God uses that a couple of times that so-and-so died and they were full of days. So the lesson for us there is, obviously, no matter how many days you're given, make sure you use each one to the full for the glory of God. Okay, let's summarize. Uh, this is not our last lesson on Job. I plan on doing uh, uh, a summary of the entire book called Lessons from Job, so we'll get to that. But anyway, the summary from today's lesson, uh, point one, God's providence goes beyond human perception. So judging God's governance is both ignorant and arrogant. Very important we understand that God operates beyond what we understand or comprehend. Number two, suffering can lead us into a deeper relationship with God, which gives us eternal perspective and peace. Number three, God wants us to pray for sinners to be reconciled to him. That's not just us to be reconciled, but it's people we know and love who need to be reconciled to God. God encourages and even commands us to pray for them. And number four, our relationship with God is restored when we repent. That spiritual relationship, that sense of brokenness over sin, that's restored instantly. When you repent, you're instantly re reconciled to God. But that doesn't mean everything in your life is suddenly going to be fixed. Matter of fact, some things we're going to live with until glory. Okay. Um, thank you for listening. You are extraordinarily attentive. This has been a rich lesson. Now that you know... Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.